So you're making a cryptographic assertion that my telephone number is from who I am and that the network itself can double check that and then provide you with some indicator of some form that in fact there was a high probability that this call is is from the person they're doing an assertion for. This is episode 322 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. I'm Lisa Gonzalez. By now, most of us are woefully familiar with spam phone calls, robocalls, and calls that spoof caller IDs. At the very least, they're annoying, disruptive, and make us feel like we've been tricked into answering a call we wouldn't otherwise give the time of day. In this week's podcast, Christopher speaks with a man who's working with others to try to curb these deceptive practices. Richard Shockey of Shockey Consulting has been in the telecommunications and technology business for decades, advising telecom and technology companies and investors, as well as national agencies. He fills many roles, but in recent years, he's been on the SIP Forum, an IP communications industry association that engages in numerous activities that promote and advance SIP-based technology. Richard discusses how market conditions, lack of investment, and the transition to new technology has created the right situation in which robocalls and caller ID spoofing is much easier. He also describes a plan of attack to use technology to reverse the trend. He gets into the problems in implementing the approach, such as how to present the technology to end users and how to deal with errors, especially in reporting. Richard also goes on to describe how tackling the rules of adopting the new technology are a significant hurdle that needs to be resolved as we venture through the transition to voice over IP services. Now here's Christopher with Richard Shockey of Shockey Consulting. Welcome to another episode of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. I'm Chris Mitchell with the Institute for Local Self-Reliance up in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Today I'm speaking with Richard Shockey, chairman of the SIP Forum and a private telecommunications consultant. Welcome to the show, Richard. Thank you very much, Chris. Pleasure to be here. You and I have been interacting for years over uh, email and uh, on these uh, various um, discussion forums. And, and I've always thought you had a, you know, a very sharp eye and, uh, and a great wit, which I appreciate. Um, but tell us a little bit who you are and, and what you do. Well, I've been involved in the telecommunications industry for you know, most of my professional life. Uh, for the last 20 years or so, I've been doing any number of things uh, Regarding telephony, uh, the traditional time division multiplexing, the you know, the classic pot, and more specifically voice over IP, which is really what SIP is all about. SIP stands for the Session Initiation Protocol, and it is the protocol of choice for really almost all of the modern real-time voice communications in the United States and frankly globally as well. I've been involved with that for you know now over 20 years. Uh, first with the Internet Engineering Task Force, engineering the basic idea, and then now as chairman of the SIP Forum, basically advancing the state of the art further and of course dealing with the complications that have arisen because of the use of voice over IP, which is in part 
uh, the problem of robocalls and spoofing. You know, as I've I've said to you and and people understand, the the issue with robocalls and spoofing from time to time is no good deed goes unpunished. Okay, <laughs> right, and. Part of the problem is we wanted highly competitive markets in telecommunications. And, you know, nowadays we don't think about uh, picking up the phone and calling long distance internationally or locally or anything else like that um, because we're all basically on one form of flat rate plan or not. And that was part that was possible because of the dramatic reduction in transport costs that internet protocols gave all of us. But that also opened up a window between um, the classic telephony uh, protocols and the new IP protocols. And I don't think any of us were ultimately prepared for what was going to happen. And so that that boundary between classic telephony, you know, the black phone that you know, some of us still have, and uh, the the IP based technologies created an attack vector that we're slowly but deliberately trying to close. And that's something we're going to be talking about in, in greater depth is uh, some of these issues of the robocalls spoofing and and how to get around to uh, fixing it. Um, one of the things that I, I wanted to just make sure we nail down, though, is what SIP is. And and if I have it right, SIP is, is sort of that bit of magic that enabled, for me, the first application I was aware of it was Google Voice. The idea of calling a number and you could just keep changing where that number rang and, and make it a lot easier for one number to reach you wherever you are. Exactly. And the, and the, the beauty of SIP versus its competitors 20 years ago was it's very simple. You know, years and years ago, people would ask me, well, why SIP? And i go, well, it's ASCII stupid. <laughs> Namely, that if you actually look at the protocol from an engineering perspective, it's really a text file um, like HTTP where you can literally read you know, in the ASCII file what the, what the session is supposed to be about. Namely, what audio codecs or video codecs that you want and all of these other kinds of things. So the signaling went from a highly complicated uh, encrypted file across dedicated circuits to essentially just ASCII text going back and forth between endpoints that would establish a session. The classic SIP protocol looks like a trapezoid one endpoint sends a signal to the other endpoint. They negotiate between themselves, and then the session is fundamentally established. And again, with modern IP protocols, you can do voice, you can do video, you can obviously do text as well. But uh, vo voice is is what's obviously the most prevalent application used for it. So. Right now, and this is actually the most interesting statistic, about, I would say, 65 to 70% of every single voice call in the United States is utilizing SIP at some particular point in time. So this would be almost all of the mobile operators are using it. 
a hundred percent of every cable operator uses SIP, and the advanced IP-based landline operators, which would include AT&T with its Uverse, uh, Verizon FiOS, and and the CenturyLink-like products, including the advanced rural carriers. Uh, I mean, Chattanooga, uh, your membership. They're all basically using SIP at this particular mm-hmm. point. It's about 65 to 70% of all voice calls utilize SIP in some way, shape, or form. There is, a, of course, quite a bit of time division multiplexing still out there. But uh, given the fact that, that carriers are slowly but deliberately replacing that equipment, um, we're, we're, we're pretty much getting there. So it, 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 it is voice over IP is more dominant than I think people realize. And then, Richard, one other point of clarification is uh, what is Shockey's Law? Something that I, I see referenced from time to time. <laughs> Shockey's Law is actually pretty simple, which is uh, in most questions, that we have in industry or business or even philosophy, uh, money is the answer. What is the question? I think about that frequently. Um, <laughs> you know, often people will sort of say, well, why exactly is this company doing that? And uh, my, in the, inside my head, my first answer will often, um, you know, um, sort of come back to that. Well, sure, and especially in in communications technology, I mean, why do certain things happen the way they do? Um, and typically, it's it's like, well, oh, well, they're going to make more money this way, or at least they perceive that they will. They perceive that they will, and that that's you know that's an ancillary or a corollary to original Shockey's law to a certain extent. So that th- that that's something that I as a consultant and an industry observer, I keep in the back of my mind literally all the time, which is there's a reason things happen the way that they do. And uh, it's typically involving money. So as we move into this, talking about the, the robocalls, the spoofing, the, the challenges that we're facing today, um, you know, it's worth remembering, I'm very critical of those who would claim we have a lot of competition in the broadband space. And, and I was criticizing the 96 Telecom Act recently, and Blair Levin looked at me and said, well, actually, the 96 Telecom Act was really about creating competition for a voice, and that has been quite successful. Uh, I would I would have to agree with him on on that. And uh, one of the things that we've seen, though, is that despite the fact that we have a lot of benefits and voices, effectively a free app, more or less for most of us, um, I, you know, there's a lot of problems that are happening that are causing us to use voice less often, such as the spam calls, the robo calls, um, you know, just those sorts of annoyances that make us less likely to pick up the phone. Um, I think it's it's, uh, it's something that's really damaged the, the, the value of the network. Exactly. And the 96 Act, as you correctly pointed out, actually created disincentives for the carriers to invest in the service itself. Namely, because the the profit margins essentially were eliminated to a certain extent, but then the government itself has certain other issues involving the voice communication service that it it believes are primary, and people forget 
that the voice service is government's primary link to public safety. Okay, 911. And basically the the whole public safety establishment to a certain extent is reliant on the voice communication service to actually operate. Even though we're slowly seeing the deployment of 911 text, you know, if you have a heart attack or, you know, you need police or fire or one or the other, you're going to call 911 and that depends upon voice. Right. I mean, for most of us, especially our ability to convey information is much greater over a voice link than on a tiny keyboard that keeps mangling what we're trying to say. Exactly. And, you know, as, as I've often you know, pointed out to people, uh, especially nowadays, is, you know, never put anything into text that you would not want a federal prosecutor to read, <laughs> uh, which in certain, you know, around here in Washington, D.C., which is where I live, uh, is now becoming more popular because, uh, again, people don't look at text files and stuff like that. So there, there, were, there were a clash of market conditions um, and a lack of investment in the basic idea of real-time voice communication and this transition from classic circuit-switched time division multiplexing to all IP technologies that created, you know, essentially a perfect storm. And the perfect storm has created the robocall caller ID spoofing problem because now uh, the attack vectors are so easy to, uh, to deal with. And it's like spam was, uh, you know, a decade ago. But the problem with, was you could deal with spam in the email world because you could ultimately apply what are known as Bayesian filters to the text itself to, to reduce the problem of, of you, know, you know, bad email. However, you cannot do that with voice. And we've had to come up with a entirely new way of thinking about this stuff. And so myself and a, a lot of engineers, by the way, what, we, what happened was we were summoned to a little room here in downtown DC by Henning Schultzrenner, who's uh, the former chief technology officer of the FCC. He's also the father of SIP and a fully tenured professor of uh, electrical engineering and computer science at Columbia University. And he basically said, look, guys, we've got to fix this. Um, and it's like, okay. Hey, what, was the, what was the time frame on that? Four years ago. Okay. So you were, you, you were summoned to this after these problems had been evident for some time. Really. Yeah. And, and at that particular point, the, the commission uh, during the last administration basically said, okay, you know, enough is enough. And this began the process by which the engineering community would basically look at the, in, the totality of the problem and then attempt to develop a, a national solution or an international solution to the problem. So we, we basically looked at, okay, what are, what are we trying to do here? And obviously, we realized that there's no silver bullet 
that you're not going to eliminate robocalls or caller ID spoofing from the system. It's just too complicated, but you could suppress the problem to a degree that would recreate confidence in the entire system. Okay. Uh, there's always going to be bad actors. We all knew that. And you would need some databases that would say, for instance, alert the calling parties about whether or not this has been a reassigned number. You'd need to really look at the North American numbering plan, which numbers have been actually assigned versus ones that have not been allocated. You could do a lot of things as well, but one of the things that we began to center on was this idea of call authentication. The, the concept is that the caller ID, the, 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 the number, is authenticated by the network itself. And it really came from the IP world, which is there, there's been problems in internet land about spoofing IP numbers in the BGP, the Border Gateway Protocol. Right, how, how you'd go from uh, one network to another network. Um, right. You know, generally, you sort of rely on people to honestly advertise what networks they're in control. Exactly. And so the, the genesis of what is now known as Star Shaken really came from these concepts that have been developed in the internet to secure the Border Gateway Protocol so that when you announced that you were authoritative, for a range of IP addresses that could be authenticated by the numbering authority, which in the United States is Aaron, and it's ripe in Europe and, and all of the various other authorities. So, <laughs> Sorry. All kinds of um, inappropriate jokes come to mind. Yeah, I know. It's, <laughs> but but it, what it is is in the hierarchy of IP numbering, it's very similar to that of telephone number. You know, you have this authority, which is ultimately IANA, but then goes down through Aaron and RIPE and, and APNIC and, and the rest of the five uh, international registries, and then flows through to service providers and ultimately enterprises and individuals so that you can actually route a packet over the internet. So. The, there is a definitive trail of authority for IP addresses, and what we wanted to do was duplicate that in the telephone numbering world. At least in the United States and in Canada, we had that, we had a true authority in asserting the ownership of a telephone number, and in the United States, that apex of of authority is in fact the FCC and it's the CRTC in Canada, et cetera, et cetera. And so, I mean, ultimately the, the issue is, is that somebody or some computer somewhere is initiating a call and right. claiming it is who it is not. Right. And what you're trying to do is to make sure that when they do that, um, if, they're, if they're calling me, then my phone um, before the call even gets to me perhaps would say, wait a minute, this isn't what it seems. Right, exactly. From a tactical perspective, what you're doing is called resource PKI, resource public key infrastructure. So you're making a cryptographic assertion that my telephone number is from who I am. Okay. 
and that the network itself, in this case, AT&T or Verizon or whomever, uh, can double check that and then ultimately provide you with some visual indicator or indicator of some form that in fact, there is a high probability that this call is, is from the person they're doing an assertion for. So part of the problem that we've had and why this has taken so long is that first of all, you have to put this public key infrastructure in place. And PKI is everywhere in the economy. I mean, it's, it's your smart meters. You, you're probably sitting on five PKI certificates literally in your wallet because it's, it's the way the new modern credit cards operate. So the, the, the technology was relatively understood, but one of the problems that we're struggling with even now is what do we display to the consumer? or to the business, or, or whomever, about what we think this process is accomplishing. Is it, a, do we put a big green check mark in, you know, in front of the call when you, you, you look at your smartphone? Do we have like a yellow caution triangle if we think that you should exercise caution and then maybe a big red stop sign or is it does do we look at something like traffic lights i it's 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 these kinds of things you're rethinking the voice communication service almost fundamentally at that particular point and the other aspect is can we actually enhance the call identification service you know which is technically referred to as CNAM, which would be the verbose ASCII name that occasionally shows up on your phone or, you know, in, uh, in some way, shape, or form. I mean, could we add, oh, a picture, a logo, a theme song, or something else like that? There actually is a business case for doing that. For instance, American Express or... Visa, MasterCard, the banks, one way or the other, they really want you to pick up the phone when they suspect that there may be fraud on your account. Okay. So they would actually like to display a logo that says, this really is from Bank of America, and it is authenticated from being from Bank of America. Also, UPS, the, the Postal Service, and FedEx would like to be able to send you authenticated messages that say, yes, the package is literally at your doorstep now. And, you know, maybe you ought to, you know, deal with it because, you know, of the ongoing problem of porch pirates. The other thing is that hospitals and medical establishment are also very, very interested in figuring out ways to get you to actually answer the phone because the call acceptance rates now are plummeting and that really bothers a lot of people in the contact center marketplace because they, they can't get through to consumer because nobody trusts the voice service anymore. So I want to move up the stack for a second um, and, and talk a little bit more about 
people who are making decisions. Um, but before I get there, I want to just do one final piece on that, which is I think you know, some people might be thinking, um, oh, well, right now already, if I have an Android phone, maybe I know that my my Google Pixel did this, my Nexus did it. Um, you know, it might say, you know, spam call. Um, and that, but that's based on what others have reported, right? I mean, it's not a technical uh, it's not using this technology that you're talking about. And, and it's often wrong, it seems to me, because I'll get, you know, calls from legitimate spam that are labeled spam, but it'll also be calls from like the public television station trying to get me to renew my membership. It's true. And and we're we're sorting through all of the problems literally as we speak. We have a whole group of new companies that are basically doing data analytics on the phone service. And they're making value judgments about whether or not a call is true or not. And you're beginning to see the problem of false positives. Okay. And we, we, we certainly saw that in spam, in the email world. Uh, it is going to take time to sort some of this stuff out. But one of the things that the regulators, the commission has made it perfectly clear to people is there's got to be a way to report error in the system. Okay. I've certainly had this running my own domain, which is you get on a spam list and how do I get off? Because you really don't know that the system is not transparent about error reporting. Okay. So one of the, the things that the, the FCC and others are, are emphasizing to those of us in the technical community is if we start putting these call blocking technologies in place, then there's got to be some way of reporting error because inevitably there will be an error. One of the things that I've had the impression of is that, um, as I said, I want to talk a little bit more about about sort of humans and, and less about the technology as we wrap up, but um, is that uh, the impression you've said, we know how to solve this technologically. You're having a, a challenge in getting people to make it a priority or to implement it or um, what's happening there. Am I understanding that correctly? Yes, you are. And, and first of all, you know, carriers are carriers and, and this is a technological change. And, and, and I have warned the government and the SEC to have realistic expectations. The, the thing is, this is still the voice communication service of the United States, and it takes time to deploy a technology across the board. And I basically, you know, even though we now know ex pretty much what needs to be done, it's going to take two years to deploy. And that's because the carriers have to provide the supplier community with requirements. And then Nokia or, or Lucent or, or whomever then actually have to build products. Ericsson among all of them. That takes them at least a year one way or the other. And once the products are actually built, then they have to go through you know, a variety of network testing in some way, shape, or form before they can actually be deployed. Then we've got the other complication of trying to get uh, basically Google and Apple to try and support the various pieces of the technology inside the mobile handsets, and then, of course, then there's the, the enterprise call centers and, and PBX systems. This stuff takes time. I cannot 
wave a magic wand and, and make this thing happen. We've been at this for four years and we're only now beginning to put the infrastructure in place to make this thing work. And that's probably going to take most of 2019 and 2020 to, you know, 2020 to, to get everything done. The Canadians have, are just about where we are. They have actually mandated the deployment of StirShaken and all of this technology. The British, who have a real problem, it's going to take much, much longer for them to, to sort of deal with. So we're there. We know what to do. And even now, however, you can download applications uh, for your smartphone from both AT&T and Verizon and T-Mobile and Sprint, and you'll get some pretty dramatic results pretty darn quickly. But it gets better as we sort of move down this road. Do you have any that you recommend? Talk to your, your, your service provider. If you're looking at AT&T, they have a downloadable app. I, I know the folks there. It's Haya that's involved. In, in providing that, typically the service providers for mobile devices have a recommended app that they're using, and it's best to check with them. I certainly use the one that AT&T recommends, uh, and it's free. They do have some enhanced versions and stuff like that as well. It's pretty good. What we want to do is deal with the traditional landline phones and especially figure out a way to deal with how to alert very vulnerable communities to spam calls. Um, and by that, I mean, you know, elderly, aged people who have been victimized in the past. The problem is dealing with that, not just on the smartphones. That's one thing, but, you know, the traditional, you know, black telephone as well. That's going to be a little bit more complicated. The cable operators, by the way, they've already demonstrated how to display stir shaken on the TV set as the inbound call comes in. Oh, okay. Yeah, they're, so they're there. I mean, Comcast has, has developed a pretty slick app for, for them, and Charter is going to deploy it. So is Rogers and Shaw in, uh, in Canada as well. So there's, there is an enormous amount of creative thinking among the engineering community about how to deal with this. I mean, I mean everybody's pissed. And we want a solution. And so we will start to see this stuff deploying and on all kinds of devices, you know, in the next 24 months. And I will say one thing. The FCC, Chairman Pai, and all of the staff down there have been incredibly supportive. I've met with the chairman probably four or five times on this subject alone. And the chairman has made it perfectly clear that this is his number one consumer priority and they'll get her, get it done. And of course, Chairman Wheeler in the previous administration, you know, he had the robocall task force, uh, which was very, very supportive. You know, we've been on the case now for quite some time. Well, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. I'm glad to hear both that there's, there's hope that uh, we'll see these solutions rolling out in the very near future, but also that um, this is something that is being taken seriously uh, by, by both uh, the Democratic and the uh, Republican recent chairs, current chairs of the FCC. 
in the last administration in this, I mean, they, they could not have been more supportive. By the way, there's another, I'm aware of another task force that's being put together by the state attorney generals that are asking highly pointed questions about what's being done and what the deployment timelines are. I mean, everybody gets this. Um, if it wasn't an election cycle, I think there would probably be more hearings on Capitol Hill about it. Senate and House Commerce Committees, also the uh, Senate Committee on Aging, for instance, because, again, the enormous worry about vulnerable populations and stuff like that. It's slowly but deliberately coming. And, and again, the, the, the thing for community networks as well is, you know, part of this is, is you move to the, the broadband platform. You can actually put all of this stuff in place. It's going to be increasingly difficult for classic time division multiplexing vendors, you know, with traditional copper infrastructure to deploy any solution at all. Uh, I mean, I get asked that question constantly. Well, what about, you know, the, the legacy networks? What about the copper networks? I'm going, well, I can't do anything. Right. It's, it, you just can't. It's not possible. That's going to put, I think, you know, smaller communities without advanced infrastructure at a substantial disadvantage. Right, and I would assume that, I mean, that's really often the companies like Frontier, Windstream, you know, they have a, a lot of customers for whom they have not upgraded to um, the internet protocol IP technologies. And so in terms of a single entity, that's probably going to be the ones that are harder hit. Exactly. And you, you, you mentioned the two classics. I mean, when you look at Windstream, Frontier, Consolidated, even Hawaii Telecom, for instance, they are substantially, you know, Cincinnati Bell, for instance, they are substantially disadvantaged because they've been forced by financial considerations from basically replacing the copper with fiber. And logically, there's very little they can do. It's like, well, what, what about, you know, what about Aunt Phoebe or, you know, Grandma? And I mm -hmm. go, I, I, it's just like, I'm sorry, I cannot deal with it. Well, and it, it's, it's a reminder, there's this thing happening called the IP transition at the FCC, which many of us are deeply concerned about because we see it as an opportunity for, I would, I would say, AT&T, among others. Um, but I think of them as the number one villain in this narrow case, um, where they seem to be using this as an opportunity to figure out how to um, reduce their uh, accountability. Um, but this is a very real problem in, in that we have to get the rules right to make sure that there are incentives to move to the IP infrastructure for the benefits that you've been describing. It's true. And that is an endless docket, <laughs> as we all know. It's like intercarrier compensation. It's, it's just, it's forever. <laughs> and unfortunately, there are perverse financial incentives here for the service providers. It, it is not entirely clear that the way the system has been designed, that there is a clear return on invested capital for converting to fiber mm -hmm. in, in some cases. It, 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 it took, by the way, over 10 years for Verizon to make Fios a profitable product because the, the cost of homes passed was huge 
and the initial equipment that they they used was extremely expensive one way or the other but you know certainly where i live in northern virginia they've they've moved down the path pretty quickly they are rapidly dismantling their copper network here in virginia using the 214 orders and they're boosting their penetration rates above 50 percent quite a bit but you, you are right about at&t it's just how do they do it is it going to take a new form of investment tax credit to incense some of these folks but and you know even in CenturyLink territory you've now got a sort of strange split in the way they're thinking on the one hand you've got the classic CenturyLink territories which are still copper time division multiplexing but the focus of CenturyLink's attention is really the advanced network that was part of the level three acquisition. So that's, that's changing as well. I hope that one of the things that, that this discussion has led to is people having a better sense that one, voice is still an essential application, and that two, it's going to be working better in the near future for those of us that are on uh, more advanced networks, which is most of us, as you've said. And then um, three is that we need to get the rules right <laughs> to make right. sure that everyone's able to get onto those. But Richard, I really appreciate you taking the time to come on and to, to share um, your experiences and, and how we're doing this and how it's going to happen uh, with us. You're very welcome, Chris. That was Christopher and Richard Shockey from Shockey Consulting and the SIP Forum. They were talking about plans to curb robocalls and caller ID spoof calls. You can learn more about the SIP Forum and their work at sipforum.org. We have transcripts for this and other podcasts available at muninetworks.org slash broadbandbits. Email us at podcasts at muninetworks.org with your ideas for the show. Follow Chris on Twitter. His handle is at communitynets. Follow MuniNetworks.org stories on Twitter. The handle is at MuniNetworks. You can subscribe to this podcast and the other podcasts from ILSR, Building Local Power and the Local Energy Rules podcast. Access them wherever you get your podcasts. Don't miss out on our original research. Subscribe to our monthly newsletter at ILSR.org. And while you're there, take a moment to donate. Thanks to Arnie Hughesby for the song Warm Duck Shuffle, licensed to Creative Commons, and thanks for listening to episode 322 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. <laughs>